Hi, this is Jason Cascarino. Thanks for listening to the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, a production of the Remaking Middle School Initiative, whose founding partners include Youth Next, the University of Virginia's Center to Promote Effective Youth Development, and the Association for Middle-Level Education, or AMLE. You can learn about Remaking Middle School on the web at remakingmiddleschool.org. Now, here's this episode. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, where we explore the many facets of young adolescents in the middle school years, from the adverse to the awkward to the awesome. I'm your host, Jason Cascarino. Today, I talk with Kent Pickell, CEO of Search Institute, a Minneapolis-based nonprofit research organization focused on studying the factors that drive youth success. Under Kent's leadership, Search Institute has engaged in a singular focus on relationships, which he and the organization see as the foundational ingredient in the learning and development of young people. We're now going deep into the one thing, the one thing that our research and research that others have done really is showing are like roots. They're like the roots of development. When a kid has strong relationships, the roots are deep and they can grow, they can thrive, they can withstand the storms that life throws at them. And the reason we've latched onto this roots metaphor is that the, the the health of the roots is influenced by the quality of the soil and the air around the tree. And if the soil's rich in relationships and supports, those roots are going to be deeper. If the soil is kind of uh, barren, its uh, development is going to be challenged. And if there's toxins in that soil, then the growth is going to be really deeply affected. Kent and I talk about how Search Institute conducts its research, working in partnership with youth organizations in schools and communities to learn while also making an impact. The five core elements of relationship building derive from this research that structures Search Institute's developmental relationships framework and the types of approaches and practical activities that educators, youth workers, and parents and families can use to intentionally develop and foster positive relationships. Now, here's my conversation with Kent Pickell. Kent, I'm really delighted to get to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me. I am psyched to be here. Um, whenever I find anybody who wants to talk about relationships, we jump at the chance. That's terrific. Uh, well, we're going to spend a lot of our time here talking about Search Institute and relationships and your work there. And so I, I thought we'd spend a little bit of time first here at the beginning on your life before search. When I started reading about your background, I thought Kent is a little bit hard to pin down. Here. <laughs> you have a, a bit of a wavering path. And as someone who also has a wavering path, I hope you take that in the right way. You started as a high school teacher, it sounds, and that seems pretty straightforward. But then you wound up in Washington at the White House and had a few stints with public officials and federal government before ultimately coming back to the realm of education and youth in Minnesota. For educators who listen to this podcast, tell us how and why you made that swerve from a classroom in Minnesota to Washington and then back again. So you're you're completely right. My path has been, um, I think, wavering is not a bad way to put it. Today actually is my 53rd birthday, and I still uh-huh. I still feel like I am trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. In some ways, <laughs> but actually, it, yeah, it hasn't been quite as haphazard um, as that. And sort of in a nutshell, I think my career to date has really been an effort 
somewhat uh, intentionally and somewhat accidentally to connect the dots between three things that really don't connect very often in our world, and that's practice, research, and policy. We've got all three parts of that triangle that are critical for kids' development, and for lots of different reasons, they too often either are decoupled and often at odds um, with each other. So, um, the, the personal journey is—you're right. I actually, uh, uh, you know, grew up in Minnesota, a proud product of the St. Paul Public Schools, and after having gone to college and grad school elsewhere, and actually lived overseas, taught. English for a couple of years in the middle of China in the immediate aftermath of the Tiananmen Square massacre before there was even a single McDonald's in the whole country, and then came home and was teaching high school and was very excited about that, but then applied for this really interesting program called the White House Fellows Program. It's a program that Lyndon Johnson started where about 12 people go to D.C. for a year and work at the very senior levels of the federal government, both to contribute to the work of the government, but also to develop their leadership skills. And kind of the crazy experience that I had was before I decided to go into education, I really was on a path to be sort of a China nerd. And so I had studied intensive Chinese in high school and college and then had lived and worked there. And then when I was teaching high school, I ran summer programs for American kids in China. And so I ended up spending my White House Fellows year at the CIA, working for the director of the CIA. So I'm a 27-year-old high school teacher at the top levels of the CIA. And that was quite a gee whiz experience and traveled the world and was in the foreign policy arena for a while. And then I did want to get back to education. And so made my way in the Clinton administration to the Department of Education. And then finally managed to come back and ended up as an administrator back in the school district that I graduated from here in St. Paul, where I am today. And then from there, it was really a continual process of being more and more drawn to research and evidence, but never wanting to go and be a pure academic. And so I went to the University of Minnesota and started a consortium that was focused on college readiness for kids from backgrounds that are underrepresented in higher education, where a lot of our work started as, as your work is focused in middle school. And then about eight years ago, moved a mile down the road to Search Institute, which is a nonprofit that's been around for more than six decades and has proved to be a really good place to be trying to connect the dots between those three triangles of policy practice and research. Let's talk about the Search Institute. The organization, which is based in Minneapolis, has been around, as you mentioned, in some form at least since the 1950s. And I feel like in the world of education and youth organization, that's uncommon to have Mm -hmm. been around for that long. What's the basic thrust of the organization? Why does it exist? We did start in the 1950s and our founder just died um, a year or so ago at age 100. And he initially was a youth pastor who got very interested in spiritual development, went off and got his PhD. And the kind of crazy backstory of how a little nonprofit in Minneapolis sort of took off was that his brother ended up as the CEO of a company that really is actually technically called a fraternal organization, previously called Lutheran Brotherhood, now called Thrivent. So it was a big, essentially, in finance and insurance company in downtown Minneapolis. And what the brother allowed Mert Strom and our founder to do long before even major universities were able to do quantitative uh, research on kids was in the evenings, go into um, Lutheran Brotherhood and use the mainframe computers to uh, use punch card survey data on youth, again, initially with a focus on spiritual development, in a way that, as I said, most universities could never do, much less a little nonprofit. So suddenly you had this nonprofit perched in Minneapolis that was doing much more rigorous research on, on youth development than would otherwise have been possible. And so over time, the focus on spiritual development shifted to more 
to youth development more broadly. And um, Mert moved uh, aside from the presidency and hired a guy named Peter Benson, who was the research director. And in 1990, Peter and the other colleagues at Search started work on what they called developmental assets in mm-hmm. kids' lives. And that really was the work of the organization for two decades in earnest and, and arguably three before I showed up and we made a strategic pivot. But the assets work really did catch on around the country, especially in out-of-school time, but also in schools. Um, and that legacy was part of what drove me to move that mile down the road from the University of Minnesota. Um, and it also, it, while, while what we're doing now on developmental relationships is very different from the work on developmental assets, it is, it is deeply linked philosophically. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and we're working every day to, to build on that, that legacy that, as you said, is pretty rare for a nonprofit to have lasted more than 60 years in sort of education and youth development is not um, common. Yeah, for sure. Well, I do want to talk a lot about developmental relationships in a bit, but I do want to start, if we can, with developmental assets first, just for, for this reason. I first came across the work of the Search Institute doing some research of my own on young adolescents and middle grades. And unlike you, I, I when I say research, I'm not a research scientist by any means. I was the CEO of a nonprofit called Spark, which is a mentoring oh, yeah. program in the out-of-school space for middle school age youth. And, and I was just trying to better understand what was going on with young adolescents, the youth that we were serving, in large measure to make the case for support for our work. And what I saw in a variety of data is this marked drop in engagement in school. And obviously, this varies from student to student and from school to school. And some schools may see high levels of engagement. But on balance, when you look at the full picture, young people in the middle school years start to check out, as I put it. Uh, School just isn't as relevant to them. And I wanted to know more about why that may be the case. And the Search Institute had studied what you referred to as developmental assets. And just like the data on engagement, there was this similar pattern that I saw in your data. Higher baseline in, say, fifth grade, a sizable drop from sixth and into ninth grade, and then a leveling off in in 10th through 12th grade. Tell me about these developmental assets and why you might think that there is this decline in these assets as young people move through this early to to mid-adolescent period? Um, I should qualify my my answer first by saying the assets work predates me. And so while I know it, um, both before I got to Search Institute and then, of course, in building on it since I've been there, it's not the direct work that I've been as involved in as the relationships work. So with that caveat, I think the assets work in when it started in 1990 really took off for a few different reasons. One it saw kids for their strengths as opposed to the deficits. It was a period where, you know, everything from the discussions of the decline of American education after a nation at risk, were sort of having people throw their hands up and, oh my God, our kids are never going to keep up with the Finns or the Japanese. And then, you know, even more seriously, it was a period where the crack epidemic and other things were causing violence and destruction in many communities. And along came this approach saying, let's not obsess about kids' deficits, let's build on their strengths. So I think that was number one. Number two, and this does tie to your your, your point about the sort of the dip in, in assets, it, it, it took youth perspective very seriously. It wasn't just what the adults thought the kids were doing as measured by anything from standardized test scores to like a mental health screener, but it was what do the kids think their assets are. And then the third is I think it really mapped complexity. You know, initially, actually, there were only 30 assets. And then by the time the the team at Search 
sort of got done with the initial wave of research, there were 40. And that's a lot, actually. There's a challenge in having 40 assets. But it also was valuable because we all know that youth development and educational progress are insanely complex. And so it does make sense that there's 40 assets that were there. I think that the really important point about that you made about the sort of the, the progression of assets, and this is something that we are just beginning to get to in our work on developmental relationships, is we have to think hard about kids' developmental trajectories and what is the normal course of development and what are issues that are being influenced by everything from poverty to racism to bad teaching to factors beyond the normal development. And so when you see the the dip that you were talking about, um, which we also see not just in relationships in our current work, but we also have done uh, work on civic development, kids' engagement with the world, funded by the National Science Foundation. And we see the same dip, the same dip in beginning of middle school and some recovery as we get through high school. And the question is, is that dip really a, a normal turning inward as kids begin to identify uh, personal identity and begin to establish some distance from adults and from their their parents, which can be a challenge if you have a middle schooler or you're a middle school teacher? Or is it indicative of uh, some deeper issues that require intervention? And so untangling the normal progression of development from kids being influenced by environments or other factors that are problematic is something that just candidly, uh, they weren't as attentive to in the assets era as we're trying to be now. But the point is, it's a couple of decades later. And so science makes progress. And you want to try and continue to put youth perspective and a strengths-based perspective at the center, but frankly, start to get really honest about the, the uh, sometimes wonderful, sometimes neutral, and sometimes toxic environments in which kids find themselves. And don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw out the strength-based approach to kids while you also get honest about the uh, contexts in which some kids are learning and growing, whether it's in the school, the community, the program, or the family. Yeah, your point about strength space is well taken. Our work in remaking middle school definitely tries to to tease out this issue of of the decline in engagement, which oftentimes I shouldn't say oftentimes, but a lot of times in a lot of circles gets written off as well. That's just young people. That's where they are. To your point, they're kind of trying to establish themselves and so forth. But in some ways, that's putting it on them, and it doesn't put enough on us to set mm-hmm. that set the whole learning and development process up properly so that they can thrive, and that does sort of speak to their developmental needs at that age. And and to, not, to say nothing of all the social and economic you know environments that a lot of our young people are, are growing up in. As you mentioned, Search Institute made this pivot of source, I think you called it a pivot, um, from developmental assets to developmental relationships. What's the story behind that pivot? So like any new leader, I showed, showed up in 2012. And of course, like any new leader, you have both the, at least in a relatively long-standing organization like Search Institute, you want to build on the past, but you also want to make a new contribution. A little quick personal story. I was at that time at the University of Minnesota and my wife, Katie, was a middle school principal. And the search firm called me to ask if I was interested in applying for the job. And even though I was in the Twin Cities, it was a national search. And so I came home and I said to Katie, do you think I should apply for this job at Search Institute? You know, and, and she said something that's stayed with me in the eight years I've been there. She said, well, yeah, I think you should. I really like their work. I like the strength-based stuff. She happened to have a counselor named Leah Elfke in her school who was a huge fan of Search Institute and had actually written her own curriculum around the assets. But Katie said something to me then. She said, but when you, if you get the job, could you could you cut down the number of assets? Because I've got eight 
800 kids in this middle school, three quarters of them are living in very challenging circumstances. And I can't focus on 40 assets. Could you get it to like two or maybe one? Um, And of course, she was being flippant because she knows that actually 40 is a low number, that really there are many factors. But she was actually identifying, I think, a a profound challenge of of the assets work. The assets work was designed actually to exist at the community level. It was designed to be what a whole community could do for kids. But if you were the leader of a school like Katie was and wanted a middle school and wanted to take a strengths-based approach to your your student success, 40 assets just – there were a lot of those assets that were just beyond your control. And we heard that again and again, not just from educators, but from out-of-school time organizations, community coalitions, juvenile justice programs. So long story short, we said, well, what is the best, what is the most important asset? We sort of said, you know, analytically and empirically, what's, what are the gateway assets that we were looking for? And in sort of a blinding flash of the obvious, but it was a multi-year process because we definitely didn't start out there. We landed on relationships, that relationships are the most powerful way to build the other assets, like a commitment to learning and positive identity, and that relationships are an asset themselves, that relationships are both an input and an outcome, um, and the capacity in kids to build those relationships. And so whereas the assets work in some ways, and I don't mean this negatively at all, obviously, it's a privilege to be able to build on it, but it was wide but not deep. We, we didn't go deep in our research into any of those assets. The role was to map the sort of terrain. We're now going deep into the one thing, the one thing that our research and research that others have done really is showing are like roots. They're like the roots of development. When a kid has strong relationships, the roots are deep and they can grow, they can thrive, they can withstand the storms that life throws at them. And the reason we've latched onto this roots metaphor is that the, the the health of the roots is influenced by the quality of the soil and the air around the tree. And if the soil is rich in relationships and supports, those roots are going to be deeper. If the soil is kind of uh, barren, its it, development is going to be challenged. And if there's toxins in that soil, then the growth is going to be really deeply affected. Let's talk about the research a little bit. Am, am I right in saying that the research you do is mostly in the field. That is to say, you're out in schools and in community settings working to both implement practices and programming and also study those practices and, and programming along the way. I, I definitely want to ask you about what you're learning from, from the research, but first say just a little bit about how search conducts its research. How do you frame it? Who are the people doing the research? Who are your partners? Give us an idea for how that work happens. Yeah, it's actually a really important point for the field. People talking about bridging research and practice has been happening forever. I mean, it's a no-brainer that it should happen, but it's hard as hell to do well. Um, It's hard to fund and it's hard to do well because the fact is, and I've been a teacher and administrator, your priorities when you're out there serving kids are to meet the needs of those kids where they are, when they're there, and to do it oftentimes with constrained resources and tons of complexity and you know, uh, an idiot superintendent or a dysfunctional school board or a community undergoing trauma or wh- whatever. Um, I don't mean to be flippant about those things. And that's your reality. And then you have researchers come along who want to follow the science deliberately and carefully and appropriately. And it doesn't work if you ask the practitioners to abandon the core energies of practice or you ask the researchers to abandon the core methods of research. And so where we're landing, and this is very much a work in progress, is that all of our research happens through partnerships with youth-serving organizations 
increasingly networks of youth serving organizations, whereas a lot of the assets work was with one school or one out-of-school time program at a time, we're increasingly working with networks like communities and schools or city year or the core districts in California, um, which not only gives us scale, but it gives us, you know, to impact kids, more kids, but it gives us uh, a diverse sample to learn from. And so when we go in, of course, there's always a research question or a project goal, but the, the research then becomes a mix of qualitative work where we do focus groups and interviews to understand you know, the issue at hand, the lived experience of kids and staff. And then we turn that into quantitative measures, usually self-report survey measures. But um, in our new work on social capital, it's starting to take on um, social network mapping methodologies. And so we take the qualitative and the quantitative and then the, the purpose of the research is first to add value to those organizations that are serving kids so that it has to be useful to communities and schools or city or the core districts, um, whether it's measurement or professional development or youth empowerment activity design or family engagement. All those are things we work on. But then concurrent with that, we're also publishing stuff. We're trying to actually we are publishing in peer reviewed journals. We are attempting to advance the field. But we're rarely going in with just a pure academic study. I mean, I think there have been two or three where there was no practice focus to the study. And, uh, but otherwise, we are always there with the twin purpose of adding value to the youth-serving organization we're working with, and through that, being very intentional about identifying lessons and conclusions for the, the, the scientific community or, or, and the practice community that's interested in science, too. Well, let's get into the research a little bit. What are you learning from from this research that you're doing and the communities that you work with and the partnerships that you have? What are some of the core elements of developmental relationships? So the work, our work is more, if you, you know, you, you have to make choices uh, in anything. Our, our work is more driven by findings from projects than it is by theory, but it's definitely rooted in theory. So super briefly, we're defining developmental relationships as uh, close connections that develop three things for young people and young adults. First is positive identity. I know and like who I am. The second is agency. I can influence my world. Life doesn't just happen to me. And the third is a connection to community, that I am better when I'm connected to other people. And, and also, really importantly, other people are better when they're connected to me. So that's kind of the big three. And for those nerds out there, you'll you'll recognize that that's kind of a variation on what sometimes gets called self-determination theory. And what we've shown is that there are five key elements of relationships that produce those things. And they are expressing care is number one. Challenging growth is number two. Providing support is number three. Sharing power is number four. And number five is expanding possibilities. And if you go to our website or you Google developmental relationships framework, you'll find that under each of those are three or four sub actions that bring that framework to life, make it more specifically. And the reason we designed the framework as a set of actions was because as we looked at the world of, of practice, we found very few really practical ways, if you're a teacher, if you're a mentor, if you're an out-of-school time program staff person, to translate the research on relationships, which is voluminous, into something practical and simple that you can do. And so what we showed is when kids experience relationships with adults in schools, in out-of-school time, in families that are characterized by those five elements, their social-emotional competencies are, are better, their academic outcomes are better, their risk behaviors are lower. And now we're at the pivot point in our work where the question is, can we not just show that 
relationships, uh, developmental relationships are associated with good outcomes, but can we build practical tools and resources that help schools and programs strengthen the relationships? And then does that improve the outcomes for kids? So uh, we want to move from research that establishes correlation, the association between development relationships and good outcomes to causation. Can we strengthen the relationships to put kids on the path to thrive? And so that's the the next wave of our work that we're really embracing right now. You know, I used to say about SEL that it's all well and good to acknowledge that social and emotional competencies are important for young people and adults, of course, and to understand what those competencies are. But it's really something else to know how to bring those competencies about. Like, what is the what is it that we need to do to develop them? And you talk about these elements of developmental relationships, expressing care and providing support, challenging growth. But I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit more tangible like examples of what educators in school, out of school, mentors, other caring adults can do to develop or foster or further developmental relationships. What are, what are some examples that you, that you talk about and tell people about? There's two really... This is at the 30,000 foot level. And, and so I'll, I'll give you a super specific, tangible example that, that you and I actually, before this podcast, exchanged a couple of emails about. So I'll give a really specific nuts and bolts tool in one second. But the 30,000 foot answer is that you got to think about two big things. You got to think about what we call developmental relationships approaches. And then you also have to think about a developmental relationships activities. And the difference between the two is an approach is how you make the work you do with kids relational. How you make teaching math or teaching swimming or being a probation officer a relational experience, that means the content of your school or program or your class, whether you're a counselor, a teacher, administrator, is delivered, is experienced by the young person in a relational way. And and I can say just a little bit more about that in a second. The second, the development relationships activity is totally leaving beside the focus of your class, your program, your intervention to know that kid for who they are. So I see you and then within an appropriate boundary of distance, because you're a teacher or a youth worker, they see you. And it's not an either or, it's a both and. One way to think about this, when I started my career as a high school teacher, our high school went through a huge effort to create advisories. And it was like we had committees and some people were against it. Some people wanted to do it. But, you know, and we and rearranging the schedule was a huge issue. And how much time can you do it? But there was, in the end, 30 minutes, several times, a couple times a week that was going to be dedicated to relationships. That, in theory, I'm not sure all of us did it or all my colleagues did it, that was time for those relationship-building activities where I know you independent of you as a learner person. But the problem is if that's all you do in your school is like advisories or link crew or something like that, and you do nothing to make the act of teaching and learning relational, it's like you're thinking of an inoculation of relationships will, will, will do it. And then you put the kids in the class where they sit with their desks in rows and have lectures and worksheets. And I know that's kind of a, I'm oversimplifying it, but the first answer, long-winded answer to your question is it's a both and. You need to make the, the, the work relational and make the activity uh, and have the, acti- the, uh, the activities there as well. So part of making, like, just let's just stick, because I know with middle school, a lot of your listeners are focused on school and academics. Just one way you can make teaching academic content highly relational is to make explicit to the young person. Well, I'll give you several ways. Make explicit to the young person that you are tracking them. You are tracking their progress or their struggles 
in the academic content. And kids experience that as, oh, you, you remember last week I couldn't do this, but this week I got it right. Or last week I did it, but this week I'm struggling. They are suddenly like, whoa, you're really tracking me. Now that's hard when you have a class of 35, but for a kid to experience that, they suddenly feel it's really relational. A second way to make the experience of delivering content relational is open the door for emotion in the delivery of the content. So I don't mean you stop to ask a kid how their uncle Billy is, though that's a good thing to do. When you're working with them on writing topic sentences or doing the lab or preparing to perform the scene or whatever you're doing, you actually both make space for, how are you feeling about this? It seems like you're really X. Um, And then you do that as an adult. So those are sort of two simple ways uh, to sort of make the content that you're delivering relational. On the other side, one of the simplest tools that we've created to just have kids known for who they are is something we call the four S's interview. And it's it's available on our website, but you simply say to the kid, I want to know your four S's. And the four S's are your sparks, your strengths, your struggles, and your supports. Your sparks are the things that you actually, they, they, they make you feel alive. You lose track of time. It's what you love to do. Your strengths are not just your abilities, though it includes that, but also your values. It's very important not to just say, what are you good at? But also, what do you care about to define that for a kid as their strengths? Your struggles, of course, can range from you know what keeps you up at night, what you worry about for your future. And, and sometimes what you get when you do this interview with kids is the normal challenges of adolescence. And sometimes you get trauma, um, but you don't end there. And then you do their supports. And that's who are the people and places that make you feel yourself, that make you feel safe, that make you feel good. And if you do the 4S's interview with a kid, you're really going to have a pretty good understanding of, of who they are upon which you can continue to build that relationship. So that's a super long-winded answer to this evolving set of resources we're trying to build out for practitioners in how you bring developmental relationships to life. You know, I know the, I love the 4S's and, and I know that this this context and this conversation is largely geared towards educators and the practitioners, but I'm also thinking about parents. My oldest is in seventh grade, so he's in the thick of it, and we're in the thick of it of the mm-hmm. early to mid-adolescent period and middle school and so forth. And I, I love the these sort of practical tools. I think you said earlier, but how much do you, when you, when you're formulating these tools or activities that you're developing, do you take also the the kind of parent and family lens uh, to this and how they can also absorb? Cause I can tell you as, as parents and we live, you know, in a pretty privileged community. So we don't have the, the other sort of context that, that would make it much harder, but even we struggle with how to develop good, strong relationships and understand who our kids are now because they're different than what they were even just six months ago or or a year ago because they're really changing so fast. So how much of these activities that you're building can family, parents and families use? There's a, it's an awesome question and you are right. You really are at that pivotal moment as a parenting adult. There's there's a website that we've created that is actually maybe stupidly on our part, but there was a story behind that that I won't go into. It's it's separately branded from Search Institute, but it's called Keep Connected. And it really is focused on kids right there in the middle grades years that you're living through, though I think it's relevant for younger kids and older. But if you Google Keep Connected Search Institute, you'll come to a website. And what you'll find there is a series of resources for parents. And just on the point exactly, Jason, that you were just making, there's a whole section there. It's probably the most used section called Ages and Stages. And it is a simple distillation of pretty extensive developmental science to what, what's, what, what's normal. 
Um, and we don't call it, you know, there's so much danger in sort of defining normal, but at the same time, you are as a parent, as I uh, am as a parent, and I was when my kids were your age, you're looking for some ways to make sense of this, you know, evolving kid that's coming. So keep connected that, that website and the, there's quizzes there that are interactive and resources that we've also created a program called keep connected, which is why there's a separate name that schools and out of school time programs can deliver themselves where they bring middle school kids and parenting adults together for a series of collaborative activities, usually in the evening, usually with food, where they walk through our framework about, of expressing care, challenging growth, providing support, sharing power, and expanding possibilities. And very often, one of the light bulbs that goes off for the kids, which might be interesting for you with a seventh grader, is the kids are actually shocked that their parents actually care about the, the, the way that the kid thinks about them in a relationship. The kids sort of say, well, you're just my parent. It, you, you don't really care if I care about you. You don't really care if I expand your possibilities. And when actually you have the parenting adults and the kids there together and the parent says, no, actually, it really means a lot to me when you let me know you care. It's a shock for a lot of middle schoolers. They're just thinking you're like this omnipotent or maybe clueless creature. And then you have a parent who says, no, no, it's actually really, really meaningful. It, you can see it in the kid. They're like, really? In our remaining moments, I do want to talk about our current world and our current context for doing our work. I've had a number of conversations lately, both on this podcast and in other settings, about the topic of relationships in a time of pandemic and social distancing and remote learning, as well as the amplified uh, conversation around race and inequity. How have you all adjusted to the way you support educators and developmental relationships at this particular moment? Not just in terms of how you deliver workshops and trainings, but also the content of those workshops and trainings that best fit the needs of the moment. So you mentioned two issues. One, the pandemic and distance learning, you know, not being together in place, and the second, race, culture, and equity. And of course they're linked, but let me kind of try and quickly respond to them separately. On the issue of let's just say the pandemic and kids' disconnection from schools and programs, and in many cases, the theory that they're connecting via technology. This is an area where, and I don't, I'm proud to work in a serious research organization, but this is an area where research becomes a lagging indicator. Like for us as a serious research organization that actually does its homework and bases its tools on data, the pandemic has completely caught us and flipped everything around. And so we have dramatically shifted the way we work with user organizations. We've successfully transitioned all of our workshops to virtual and our surveys to virtual, but we have not had original research on how you build relationships via technology with kids to offer people. If I knew what I know, know now know, I would have started working intensively on that three or four years ago. It is going to be front and center for us going forward. So what have we done? That doesn't mean we've done nothing. Most of our work with practitioners during the pandemic has been taking our framework of expressing care, challenge, and growth providing support, those elements, um, grounding people in that, and then facilitating their creativity and brainstorming about how they can do that virtually. So it has been more us as facilitator than it has been us as sort of provider of research-informed tools and strategies, which I think is still a valuable contribution, but it's not one in which I can say with the kind of confidence I can say about the other stuff we've been talking about that it's rooted in science, but it's us trying to sort of say, well, let's meet the needs of the moment. On the issue of race and equity, and this is a huge issue for us that is at the center of our strategy going forward, but to make a long story short, when we began the work on developmental relationships, we 
what we'd call oversampled in communities of color, communities that live in poverty, communities that have been historically marginalized, because we wanted to make sure that the research was grounded in the, ex- the experience of those kids. But to date, we, we did not differentiate among those communities. And so I think a valid criticism of our work to date has been that you could almost describe it as culturally or racially neutral. Now, it, I would say it's inclusive in that it was grounded in deep reading of both the research literature and deep engagement in those communities I mentioned. But kids experience care, challenge, support, sharing of power, and expanding possibilities differently based on the context in which they are growing up, and especially based on race and culture. So I'm excited to say we've just received funding to work both with groups of researchers of color and then most importantly, working in a family setting to analyze how developmental relationships happen similarly and differently within and across cultures. So kind of moving from a racial and culturally what you might call neutral approach to one that is, we hope, culturally responsive. So that we have more to say about how, for instance, in an African-American context, expressing care might happen differently from in a Latinx context, in in a predominantly white context. I'm glad we've done it the way we've done it because I think we have a framework that holds up across cultures. You know, when we started this, you know, nobody needed anyone to come in from a research organization like Search Institute and tell them relationships matter. Everybody knew that. What I think the contribution that I hope we've made is to say, well, it's not just relationships, it's care, it's challenge, it's support. And, you know, other people have other ways of defining relationships. So then you say, okay, that's good. We can now have a a discussion of relationships that is, for instance, about are we expanding kids' possibilities? But it would be irresponsible of us to just stop there because the expanding of possibilities does happen and needs to happen in different ways for different kids. And so that's kind of the next phase of the work to be more culture responsive. We're looking at a large data set of 16,000 kids from across the country. And one of the things that we're seeing that's really interesting, and it's both schools and out of school time, is for Black, Latinx, and uh, Asian Pacific Island youth, they actually in both the schools and programs that we've looked at in this one data set, and there's a brief on our website on this that you can look at called Insights and Evidence, the kids of color are experiencing developmental relationships at higher rates and at higher levels than the white kids and in their schools and programs, which in many ways I took as a very hopeful sign. During the pandemic, it also is a very concerning sign because those kids are disconnected from those relationships right now that matter a lot in their lives. Mm. So um, the, the being a more equity-driven organization is a top priority for us. And we're at the beginning of this journey. And as a, a, a white guy leading the organization, though I'm a white guy who uh, was married to an African-American woman, my, my first wife who passed away and who raised an African-American and two biracial kids who identify as African-American, Race has been a part of my life, but I'm also deeply aware of my own perspective in this journey and continually try to learn from both the research and especially practice around these issues that, that you're raising here. Toward the end of our conversation, but really in some ways it could have even have been the beginning because they're so much at the center of what we're all thinking about. Finally, Kent, if there was one thing, one bit of advice based on your experience working with youth and and on developmental relationships that you would offer to educators, both in school and in after school and summer programs and to parents, I guess, per our conversation of things they ought to either know or ought to be doing, what would it be? I would say at both the individual and the organizational level, make a decision to be intentional about relationships. Don't just expect them to happen because you're working so hard or you're so skilled at, at your curriculum or at your work as a counselor. 
um, see the relationship as a thing. And I think there's a, there's a before, during, and after way to do that. Like before is I plan ahead for relationships. When I'm planning my class, when I'm planning my school schedule, I, I think about relationships in a forward-looking way. The during piece is when I'm interacting with kids, when I'm having a conversation in the hallway or in front of my class, I'm conscious of the relational impact. If I'm having a kid who is disobeying me or disagreeing, I'm thinking, okay, if I come down on this kid in a way that ruptures the relationship, I'm really in trouble down the road, even though I might be really upset you know, in the moment. And then after is reflecting. How am I doing with relationships? Where, where, where are my strengths? Where are my challenges? And it's probably a good, good place to end, but just to assure people, sometimes what, what we're doing can all of a sudden mind-numbingly complex. And practitioners, you know, teachers, administrators, others who hear about this are like, oh my God, now you're telling me I have to do all of this stuff in addition to everything else I had to do. And the good news is when you make a commitment, either individually or organizationally as a school, to be intentional about relationships, you actually just start to see these opportunities organically. They start to show up. You start to see the, the, the possibility. So this isn't like learning an entirely new skill or adopting a new program or a new curriculum. It's kind of like somebody uh, used the analogy once that when you buy a new car, suddenly you're driving around and you see all the other cars that are the same make and model and you notice them. You're like, oh, it's a Toyota Corolla. Well, it's not because there suddenly are more Toyota Corollas in the world. It's because you've made a decision to buy a Toyota Corolla. And so for a period, you're seeing Toyota Corollas around because you're intentional about Corollas. And our work with practitioners who are in very challenging circumstances suggests the same thing can happen with relationships. Like once you, you've defined relationships, and we hope our framework helps people do that, um, you'll find your own opportunities to build them. And probably you're already doing this. That's the other thing is that we have a lot of master relationship builders in schools and programs, and we don't do much to learn from them or hold them up or celebrate them. And there's a lot of wisdom in the room, and we can be tapping that as well. Kent, this has been a joy. Uh, I find you and your work really engaging and and then eager to to keep up with it. Meanwhile, thank you really for, for joining me. Yeah, well, thank you. What you guys are doing is so uh, critical um, because relationships are necessary but not sufficient. And so what we're trying to do has to fit in with larger efforts like what you're trying to do. So that if we did everything right in relationships, but we don't do anything about school structures or curriculum or, you know, fill in the other blanks or uh, equity, it's not going to be enough. But we also can't forget the relationships. And so we're thrilled when we have a chance to plug in our work on relationships to these larger initiatives that are thinking about the other really critical pieces of the puzzle. That is uh, certainly been one of our probably most critical focus areas is on relationships. So we're going to learn a lot from you all. Likewise. Thank you again. And, and thanks to all of uh, your listeners out there who joined us with us. That was Kent Pakel, CEO of Search Institute. You can follow Kent on Twitter at Kent Pakel, K-E-N-T-P-E-K-E-L and Search Institute online at searchinstitute.org. Lessons in Adolescence features conversations with researchers, practitioners, program developers, and advocates for young adolescents in the middle school years. Recently, I talked with Chris Baum, social entrepreneur and founder of a handful of successful organizations, all centered on new and different opportunities for learning and development of young adolescents, which he has been driven to build in part from his own unhappy experience in those years, and a frustration he has had with the way he sees that middle school is most often perceived. 
ask a random passerby on the street to free associate around the word middle school and you'll see it so clearly it's just it is culturally the lowest imaginable expectations i mean compare that to any other age group you know ask someone to talk about early childhood or kindergarten or high school or college right um right. when it comes to middle school we have culturally decided that this is a wasteland and mm-hmm. that our expectations should be appropriately low and to me it is the biggest missed opportunity in education you can catch all of my conversation with chris in a previous episode. Thanks for joining the Lessons in Adolescence podcast, a production of Remaking Middle School, an initiative that seeks to transform the learning and development experience for young adolescents in the middle school years. Remaking Middle School brings together good educational practice in school and out of school with the latest developmental science. You can learn about Remaking Middle School or find more resources about the topics of this podcast on the web at remakingmiddleschool.org or learn more about the founding partner organizations, the University of Virginia's Youth Next Center, on the web at curry.virginia.edu slash youth-next, N-E-X, or on Twitter at youth underscore next, and the Association for Middle Level Education, on the web at amle.org, or on Twitter at amle. The Lessons in Adolescence podcast is produced by Abby Gillespie and me, Jason Cascarino. You can listen to or download each episode at the Remaking Middle School website, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.